Welcome to Win Win, a podcast from the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at the Waterford Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and in each episode, I'll be chatting with someone who works behind the scenes in sport, helping athletes to maximise their performance potential. If my guest is winning, hopefully their athletes are winning too. In this episode, I'm catching up with Owen Reinish, Head of Performance Life Skills at the Sport Ireland Institute. Owen, welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased to get the chance to catch up with you today. I know you're probably very busy with Tokyo debriefs and things like that at the moment, so I'm grateful that you have a little free time to chat. Ah, uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. What are things like for you guys up there at the moment? How, how, were, you, were you over in Tokyo? I wasn't over in Tokyo. Uh, no, I wasn't there. Um, we were involved with the, I suppose, the transition program, as it's called, um, which was prepping athletes for before during and after the games uh, and, and to have a, a positive experience throughout. So, uh, yeah, we're actually we're quite busy now catching up with uh, Olympic and Paralympic athletes, um, debriefing, as you say, but also understanding what they need to make the next steps and, uh, and supporting them through that. Well, maybe I was going to start with the basics, but maybe we'll just jump in at the end there. So what, what, what do you do when you're debriefing an athlete after, after a big competition like the, the Olympic Games? Well, in, in our role, I suppose, in, in life skills, we don't we don't deal with uh, performance strictly. So we, we talk much more about their experience uh, rather than the performance. I think that's the role of the psychology department and, and possibly the coaches themselves, you know, and the staff around the athletes. So we, it's much more about their experience, uh, how they found it. And then in particular, we focus on their transi- transition afterwards. I mean, the, the Olympic Games is and the Paralympic Games are unique in that they only happen every four years, and this last one was a five-year build-up. So it's a long time waiting for one event, which might only last, you know, 90 seconds, um, and then you come back and have to, it's over in an instant. So there's quite a, a, a natural anticlimax climax uh, when you come back from an Olympic or Paralympic Games. And um, part of our work is to help athletes uh, understand that before they go, that that's normal. Uh, and to normalize that, but also for, to give them some steps and some practical solutions of, of how to actually deal with that anticlimax um, and move on to whether it's the next year of their sporting career or for some of them, it'll be a transition out altogether. So, yeah, you mentioned transitions there that, that, that there's it depends on which direction the athlete is going. So maybe we'll focus on an athlete that's staying in the sport um, that they'll be looking to build towards the next uh, big competition. So. Um, what do you try to take from their experience? What 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 are the, the key things you're looking to pull out there and, and use? Uh, I guess it's their learning. So if they if they're a first time uh, Olympian or Paralympian, is you know what, what they took from the experience, what they think they could bring forward if they're going for another cycle, um, and and also just their reflections on where they're at. So if if they're having um, a tough time, that they know that what supports available to them uh, and how to access it. Um, and then just some practical steps towards their next their planning, their next year, their next month. Um, I mean, that's one of the best things an athlete can do prior to actually heading out to a major championships is actually have uh, a simple structure or plan for what's next when they get home. Because it, it, it means that they hit the ground running, they know what's next and they're not left in, in limbo. Um, because this period between um, an Olympic Games and Christmas is often a period where athletes drift a little bit aimlessly um, and that's because there's personal changes but there's also um, systemic changes so 
sports, some of their key staff might actually be finished their contract and new coaches might come into the structure, new performance directors. Um, there might be uncertainty around funding for the next cycle. So there's a lot of systemic stuff that uh, make that period uncertain for an athlete. So it's trying to give them a couple of things that they can control and work on um, while those systemic changes take place and, and they can uh, move on to the next year. And I'm guessing it, 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 that that post games experience that might be different for for different athletes depending on how the games went for them as well. Um, you know, I, I, I the, the way I'm phrasing the question in my head sounds wrong. Like every athlete who makes it to the Olympics has been successful, but obviously there might be athletes who have been. Uh, you know, more successful, they might have medals, or you might have an athlete who hasn't quite performed up to their own expectations and their post-game experience might be very different. Someone whose medals might be very busy in the post-games uh, period versus an athlete who might have gone, got a PB, done really, really well, been very, very successful, but there mightn't be as much attention on them. So is that like those type of transitions must be difficult to manage too? Yeah, it's so like it's so complex for each each individual and it really is we really do look at it as a case by case um, because each sport is different and obviously each athlete and person is very different as well. Um, but yeah, there's there's an element of truth that if you've had a good result, it can make it easier. But there's also a lot of the research that uh, the, the Sport Art Institute uh, and that's been conducted around the area, it, it actually shows that the, the experience post-games is not necessarily contingent on the result. So I'll give you a practical example. I know she won't mind me sharing because she's spoken publicly about it before, but someone like Annalise Murphy has openly said that her post-games experience was easier to manage and more comfortable after finishing fourth place in uh, in London versus getting a silver medal in Rio um, because she probably wasn't prepared for the attention, the limelight um, that she got and basically being pulled Left, right, and center. Everyone wants a piece of you if you if you've got a medal. Uh, and there's been a number of examples like that because it's amateur sport. Any of the athletes we deal with, they're operating on a very professional level, but they're not paid like professionals. They're you know they're relying on sponsorship and sometimes government funding, some carding support. And um, so the limelight really gets shone on every four years. Um, and they might get an audience that they're not used to. And if they are successful, that audience just explodes um, and they're dealing with something that's probably quite different. And also their family are dealing with that as well. So that can be it can have its own set of challenges if you're extremely successful, too. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that it really, like you said, it depends on the individual. And I guess, uh, you know, a lot of times the public will see the athletes when they are in those big competitions, surrounded by crowds of people, surrounded by their support team. But the reality is outside of team sports, it's probably a very, very, a much more solitary run up to these games. You're training on your own with a much smaller team around you. And there's not too much attention on what you're doing. It's only, it's very different at the games. And then like you said, it can be very different in the post-games uh, time too. Yeah, oh, for sure. And I, I even think the fact that families couldn't travel uh, to Tokyo this time, it it brought a different level of attention. People uh, at home tuned in, watched on TV, watched it through social media channels more maybe than they would have uh, if it was easier to access in person. Um, so I think it got a huge amount of attention uh, at the Olympic Games. 
Were there any other specific uh, difficulties that you experienced with Tokyo? Like, obviously, it's it's very far away. That's one challenge for the athletes getting there and settling into the new culture. Um, and perhaps with COVID and, and the restrictions that were in place this time around that mightn't have been in place for Rio or London. Yeah, it, it was said uh, COVID brought a whole new level of challenge and some of the experience that you know, service providers in the Institute of Sport, for example, uh, or coaches that would have been to an Olympics in the past that could bring to bear on an athlete or a group of athletes. Uh, it was in some ways redundant at times because of COVID, because it changed everything. Uh, and we had some sports that really struggled to to qualify because they weren't able to travel as easily or, um, you know, th- the goalposts essentially got shifted multiple times. So planning and the, and the level of detail that you could bring uh, in your preparation was... Um, was much more difficult and then some people for some uh it was a silver lining some that were injured when it should have happened in 2020 uh actually got an extra year to recover from injury and prepare so there's some people that probably went to the paralympic and olympic games that wouldn't have gone if it wasn't for covid so it it really depended on the situation yeah it can um, always be a silver lining yeah well, I mean, from my own point of view and from our service, we worked very closely with the psychology department on the transition program itself. And part of that was delivery of workshops around preparation and what they can do in advance of going. Um, and one of the key elements we would have done prior to Rio, for example, was uh, detailed planning, like actually getting athletes to take control and plan for what they can. But maybe the emphasis shifted to being a bit more adaptable and just managing in, in uncertainty uh, as the game is approached. So it, our, our own plans changed how we can support athletes too. So when you, when you talk about detailed planning there, that you're not, I, I think you're not just talking about exactly what training they're going to do, but it, it goes much down into the, the minutiae of their day when they're, when they're at the competitions. Isn't that right? Yeah. And it, it could be, um, for an example, it could be, around the social media. So if that's something that's unique to the Olympic Games and they may not get that type of attention uh, at a World or European Championships or or the media element of it that's heightened, it's what's the plan for that for this athlete? Are they somebody that's, that thrives on social media or are they somebody that actually that extra attention will be a distraction or you know negative comments come in? So what's the plan for that? Can they, can they say, okay, I'm going to offload this to a trusted family member who's going to take over because I still want my profile to go up and I still want to have some followers, but I don't want the the risk of uh, that bubble being pierced or, you know, a negative comment coming in and throwing me off um, what my, my game plan. So it's, it's things like that. It's understanding what's unique about the Olympic games and, and what can you do to plan to kind of um, take control of what you can do. So we, we started off kind of at the, at the tail end talking about the transition out of it. What about the, the transition in? So when do you start doing this kind of work with the athletes? Uh, it depends on the sport. So some sports we're starting quite young. So um, for, for example, with swimming and some of the athletics athletes, we get some access to them at a younger age that so might be fifth and sixth year, for example. And then for other sports, it's later. Uh, the ideal would be that we're getting access and we're working with uh, younger athletes, you know, in, in second level education, I think would be ideal. And, and that's one of our goals is to do that in, in the future. And what type of things would you like to start working on? What do you what do you think it's important to get across early in their athletic career? Um, well, I always find it difficult to 
put into words what it is we actually do as a team. We're a small team, but we do a lot. Like the scope of the work we do is actually quite broad. So uh, what I would say is we work with athletes on creating the the ideal performance environment. And by performance environment, I mean they're balancing their competition schedule with their training schedule. They have that link with their coach as well, but they're also balancing. They're, they're a person. They're not just an athlete. And they're balancing a family, uh, a group of friends, a social life. And they're, they're probably balancing work or school or education as well. So that, to me, makes up their performance environment. And it's how to create the best one possible for that individual. So that's one element of what we do. And then I suppose the other side is uh, sharpening the skills that that individual has to operate well within that environment. Um, and I, I kind of I always say sharpen the skills because we're, we're dealing with carded athletes. It's, you know, between 200 or 300 of the, the best Olympic and Paralympic athletes in Ireland. So they already have a really high level. If they're coming through the doors of the of, of the Institute of Sport, they're, they're at a high level. They're operating at a high level already. So it's about maybe some tweaks around some of those skills and um, to operate within that environment as well. Yeah, so it's important to consider the athlete as a as a whole person. It, it's they're not just what they do at training or at the competition. There's there's so much more to it than that than than there's those two aspects. Yeah, and I I, I think if you forget that as a, a service provider or even a coach, uh, it's tear peril. You know, like you can't just view them as an athlete only. They're a person first and an athlete second, in my view. You mentioned there, so obviously there's the, the carded athletes that you work with. Is it just uh, athletes who are in the system, the, the elite carding system that you work with? Or do you try to, if you, you're talking about trying to get them in a little bit younger there, do you work with underage athletes as well? Is, is there a, a transition into the transition program? Um, it's up to the sports that we work with. So the, the sports decide um, who gets the service and it's led. So it's, it's athlete centered for sure, but it's led by the coach and the sports themselves. Um, who we get access to, when we get access to them, uh, and how we work with them. So they're they're agreements that are drawn up with each sport, um, and you know some of the bigger sports they might have a a more defined pathway. So we'll probably get to work with those athletes younger, um, at a younger age level, and in a more probably systematic way. I'm thinking there are a lot of our listeners will, uh, will probably be third level students and I'm sure there's a big overlap then a lot of your athletes are third level students as well so what are some of the, the challenges that the, the student athletes uh, face and how do you guys aim to to help them cope with those challenges? Um, well I think the transition from second level to third level is tricky for everyone uh, it goes from being something that's you know, very structured and you kind of have to follow within the the, the boundaries and, and, and do as you're told to a certain extent. And parents have a, a big uh, say over that as well to the freedom that comes with third level. You know, if you don't want to go to a lecture, nobody's going to be checking over your shoulder or saying, you know, you weren't there or reporting it back to your parents. Um, so the, understanding that level of freedom and uh, and how you, you manage that as well as your training is it, it is a challenge, I think. Uh, the workload can go up for some people if they're in a challenging course. Um, and I think you could fall through the cracks. You, you can fall behind at third level and maybe it not be noticed as quickly as it might be when you're in a classroom setting at a second level uh, school. Um, so I think that's a challenge. Um, and I think the flexibility 
uh, varies a lot between third levels in Ireland. So if you're an elite athlete uh, and you may or may not be on a scholarship, the level of flexibility afforded to you to actually allow you to say, okay, I've, I've a clash here with a major a European championships clash with my exams. There may not be flexibility to do much about that on the academic side, depending on where you, where you're studying. So that's, that's a big project we're working on right now. Uh, and Emma Saunders uh, is, is leading that up in our department. She's a particular set of skills and our PhD is in the area as well. And she's really well suited to that. So we're actually developing a, an accreditation uh, for third levels that they can opt into. Um, and it, it, they, if they hit a certain amount of criteria, they can be Sport Ireland accredited institutions, um, which means that they're athlete friendly, that they have the flexible flexible policies in place to allow them to, to balance that high end, you know, training up to twice a day every day uh, alongside their academics. Um, so that, that and that, that yeah, involves quite a lot of things, you know, that can look very different. That flexibility it could be splitting years, it could be moving exams, it could be uh, extra help, mentors, tutors, those types of things. Yeah, I could imagine that varies quite a bit from from college to college or from university to university, even, you know, if how the semesters operate or how the lectures are structured over the course of the day. It might be easy for one facility or one one institute to, to make concessions in one way and it might be very difficult on another course. So yeah. I imagine that's a fairly big task to 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 try and negotiate all those uh those factors. Yeah, I know it is. It, it's a it's a big ask, but I think the, the hope is and the fact that it's opt in as well, but the hope is that it will maybe raise the standard uh, nationally for what's possible uh, in terms of flexibility for for athletes and that we'll all learn together as a group um, and we really are trying to play catch up I guess with some of the rest of the the EU in terms of um, the minimum standard required to support athletes at that level. Who on that then so who would be you know who would we be looking up to or who would you guys look up to in terms of how they've got a good system or a good setup in place for us to support athletes? Well, we've had a couple of speakers in at some of the events in the lead up to this and uh, the, the Netherlands seem to be very, very strong in the space as well. Um, and we, we have some European partners like in Italy as well, who are very, very active in it as well. But it's, uh, look, it's, it's a certain level that we'd like to meet a minimum standard in and we're, Ireland are described as laissez-faire, so we're, we're relationship-based. You know, and that works. Like, don't get me wrong. It's worked for a long time that we have great relationships with the universities or the sport or the, the, the student might create those relationships themselves. And it's brilliant. But it's um, what happens when that key individual moves on or goes to a different university and the, their replacement is not interested in sport or not interested in being flexible, then you're back to square one and you could find in a very difficult position. So I think that the policy is key. The, the formal policy and, and how it's implemented. That's, it's not. It's very interesting. It's not an aspect of uh, of the role that you do that I had considered at all. But you know, it's it's good to see that high level stuff occurring to try and future proof what you do. Yeah, I I think we're like as I said, we're a very small team. We're three three people in the team, and we, we're hoping to expand that. Uh, and I think we're very different backgrounds, and that's one of our strengths. Like I'm really lucky to work with Emma, as I said, but Nilo don't know who on the career side so emma deals with the education pillar niall is more on the career side and my area is the performance side and the olympic and uh, paralympic transition programs but on niall's side the, the big project that we use there to support athletes is the athlete friendly employers network so 
another acronym there again we're full of those but uh, yeah like we some of our work with athletes might be career coaching is bringing them from a place of I don't actually know what I want to do when I finish sport to having some some viable options uh, and maybe looking at what are the gaps and and some things that they can put in place that when they do transition out that they're ready to go into into a workplace or into a different environment to competitive sports so we recognized a couple of years back that one of the pieces that we were missing was the ability for athletes maybe to get flex, flexible part-time work while they're in career uh, or shadowing or understanding well what does that actually look like for a lot of athletes they haven't been in a traditional workplace um, and and to actually understand well you know where where would I fit what would that look like in, um, in reality so this network that Niall has worked heavily on there's about 40 companies that have signed up to be flexible employers and, and big big company names as well um, and it's it's been working really well to give athletes that uh, opportunity to to compete at a high level and, and still actually be working part-time on an 18 to 20 hour contract uh, building up a second career as they go along um, and then when they transition out then they're ready to go and that's the so that's the gold standard that's what we're looking for is that when athletes finish their um their competitive careers that they're content you know they're really happy with that experience what they've learned from it but they know what the next step is and where they're going um, and yeah. how those skills transfer across it seems like it's a very comprehensive program that you guys have and you know managing it's, it's like you say we keep using the word but it is it's all about transitions from one stage of your life to the next into competition out of competition students to to employee um you know there's a it's it's really um just a fine balancing act building those bridges and making sure they're they're there to support the athletes yeah yeah absolutely um so and on that as well i suppose that there's for the for the employers the athlete friendly employers there's benefits like well it might be generalizing a bit here but they're probably going to get someone who's an athlete who's uh, who's demonstrated that they can focus and they're determined that they could be hard working in certain areas and there's probably a, a good bit of profile that comes along with hiring a, a, an athlete too so it's it's a win-win really yeah, we were. I, I think when we launched it, we were very careful that it wasn't just about the profile and uh, and that it wasn't seen as a an ask or a charity kind of ask that that they would get something extremely valuable. They get access to a, a a very untapped workforce is a good way of putting it. Like um, a, a lot of transferable skills, but also um, a very different view on things and on performance that they can bring into their workforce and the teams that are, are currently there as well. So. Some of the companies that have already placed athletes for the last couple of years have given us extremely good feedback and they're like, we want more, send more. So it's a, it's a very positive program. Super, super. So we, again, we're, we're kind of going about it in a roundabout way, but so we've talked a, a bit about what it is you do in general, but what, like, what does it, apart from taking part in fantastic podcasts like this, <laughs> uh, what, does a, what does a normal day look like for you uh, at work? Um, it's, well, there's no normal day. It's, it's, there's a lot of variety. So, and I really enjoy that about the job, but, uh, for me, I, I manage the service. So there's a lot of, there's a good bit of admin that goes with that. Not always my favorite part of the job. Um, but the part that I enjoy the most and the part that we feel adds the most value is the one-to-one support. So we might do workshops with groups of athletes, but we always try and follow that up with, um, one-to-one so that we're actually tailoring the support specifically to the needs of that individual that's in front of us 
uh, and that could involve career coaching that could involve work around um, some development that they want to do, whether it's around their communication skills, their decision making uh, their time management. Um, it, it's, it's those skills that allow them to operate in that environment uh, and, and to kind of manage the growing expectations. Because I think as you, as you go from second level education to the third level, and at the same time, as you hopefully climb the ladder and get more successful, there's greater demands on you as an individual. Uh, as you perform at a higher level, more people want more from you. And that could be media, that could be um, the demands to train at a higher level as well than when you were maybe 15 years of age. So it's knowing what to prioritize and when. So there's a, there's a lot of that type of work that we would do with individuals as well. And, you know, it's fair to say COVID has been a bit of a hindrance to everyone, but has it created any opportunities for you guys? Does Has it changed how you interact? So like doing those one-on-ones, those workshops, I'm sure the preference would be to do it in person, but can you get through more of them now that we're all used to, to, to communicating online? Uh, personally, I find the workshops a bit more difficult uh, online. I, I, I find it a little bit more difficult to gauge whether people are, you know, are with you or kind of along on the journey as you do it. But we've definitely had some silver linings. Uh, the Institute of Sport is based out in Abbottstown uh, and it's Dublin centric. So when we were in the building every single day, we saw a lot of athletes that were based there. So it could be boxing, could be swimming, you know. But there's a lot of athletes uh, in athletics or other sports that are based in lots of other parts of the country. So our silver lining has been that Zoom and Teams calls are the new normal. And we're actually getting to athletes that we didn't get to before. We're supporting more athletes that are regionally based. Um, and it's it, there's a flexibility that comes with online calls that mean that it's just it's easy. You know, it can be much easier than somebody that's based in Cork having to come up to the Institute and plan their day around, you know, a couple of meetings that they might have when they can stay put at home and do it all online. Yeah, built into it's a, it's a small part built into their day rather than an entire day that has to be built into their week, I guess. Yeah. It doesn't take out a training time or anything like that, or recovery time either. Yeah. Uh, and then I think as well, personally, and, and for some of the other members of the team, it's spending time around your own family uh, and not being, you know, nine to five in an office is, has been nice, you know, that you can you can plan your work around uh, other commitments that you might have or I've a, a two year old. And if you're having a, a rough day, being able to open the door, go out and kind of spend five minutes there and puts a new perspective on things and then come back in and approach your work maybe differently. So there's been a lot of I think there's been a lot of silver linings for I definitely agree. I think now that uh, during lockdown, before we went back into the office, I was probably getting as much, if not maybe a little bit more work done at home, but at the same time, spending more time at home with family as well, because that like my commute is long, but it's that's an extra hour yeah. in the day that you're you're reclaiming back. And it was easy maybe to just nip up and do something whenever yeah. or take a break when you needed to. Yeah, I'm keeping an ear out now to hear a whole lot of kids coming back from from training <laughs> I, and getting I'm, ready for soccer. I'm the same. Don't worry, <laughs> there'll be a knock on the door soon, probably. <laughs> are you at home now? Or are you in the office? I, I'm at home now. No, okay, no, yeah, okay, I can tell there. Very good. And so, like, how did you end up where you're? I know, I know you you started your 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 career as an athlete. You were involved in in slalom canoe. How did you progress from athlete to the role that you're in now? That's probably a whole long story, but um, yeah, I suppose it is. But it, I I retired out like I was very fortunate to have a long career. 
for, for starters. Like I was kind of 16 years in career at a reasonably high level, uh, competing at a high level. And towards the end of that, I actually started to get access. Like the Institute of Sport didn't exist before 2008. There was no building. There was nowhere to go for that. So I would have had a long part of my career without that type of support. And then towards the end and the last Olympics I did was London. Uh, I was actually in that building getting that type of multidisciplinary support as well. And a guy called Dara Sheridan did the role I'm currently doing. Absolute fantastic guy. Um, he he was the life skills person I was working at, working with at the time. And I always remember him, you know, there was he was basically always there knocking on the door and going, do you want some support? Can we do a plan before London? And I was the one, I was that one athlete that was going, look, don't really want to look at that now. I'll focus on it afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I suppose, forever grateful for him for being persistent with me because when I did finally access that support, I found it amazing. Like I got so much from his help and, and other service providers within the building as well that I was just motivated. I just thought, wow, that's a great job. I'd love to be able to, to help other athletes or to be able to pass my experience on in a meaningful way. Um, and so that it sowed a seed for sure. But one of the things that Dara, uh, I suppose, he encouraged me to do was coach in my own sport when I first transitioned out. And I was, I always remember saying, Dara, I have no interest in coaching. Like I'm, I'm zero. And he invited me along to um, a program that he was running with other coaches, a, a CPD. It was called PEP at the time. And it had two levels. Uh, the podium program had the likes of a Billy Walsh coaches as well known as that on it. And then there was, a horizon level that sat below that for coaches that were developing or for athletes that might be transitioning out that wanted to coach or were interested in, in exploring the pathway. And so I, I went on to that and I loved it. I just learned so much from, you know, your peers basically. And I started to coach even while I was still in career, I started to coach some of the juniors and under 23s. Um, and it, I suppose it provided a very soft landing for me when I finished because it was familiar wasn't a massive change and I felt like I could add value quite quickly and I had a set of you know I had some knowledge I could pass on I mightn't have had the skills to do that effectively at the time but they they kind of came a bit a bit later and um yeah I got into coaching and from someone who said I never wanted to coach I'm still doing it now part-time like I still work with some of the Irish team now and I'm still involved um on a part-time basis with those guys so um yeah, and to bring it on from there, I, I I applied for an internship in the Institute of Sport uh, after my experience uh, of working with people there and got the internship and it just went from there. I, I got a position on, on the team and when my boss uh, retired out, it's all contract work uh, when he when he finished, um, I went for the role and I got it and I, I suppose I'm... The rest is history. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like Dara snuck that transition in on you there. You didn't see it coming uh, yeah. until it was until you were in the middle of it. Yeah, definitely. Um definitely and yeah, I uh it it's given me a perspective when I'm working with athletes like that. Sometimes it can be very frustrating because an athlete might not want to work with you. And I kind of go, well, I was that guy. You know, at times I was that guy, so it it, it you have to just show that you're available show the support is there. And when the time is right, then hopefully you can do that piece of work and support that individual. 
Do you find sometimes that you might be looking at an athlete and you can tell or you have an idea what they might need, but they don't know it themselves or they don't know how to, to access it? Or how do you go about trying to nudge someone in the right direction? Sometimes, yeah, I sometimes find myself thinking that way. But I also think it's quite a dangerous trap because mm. I have a lot of experience from my own career, but my experience isn't necessarily everyone else's. And yeah, it's a it's a trap I have to keep an eye on because uh, things have changed so much since I was an athlete. So I I always try to, to uh, I suppose, try to believe that the athlete has the answers. They know themselves better than anybody else. So it's what questions can I ask them so that they arrive at their truth or their answer or their solution uh, themselves. So I, that's the way I try to operate. It's not always easy, though, because, yeah, there's a voice saying, oh, they, they just need to do this thing and then it'll all be fine. But it's it's getting the balance right, I guess. Um, that's yeah, it's a, you've kind of. Uh, got to rein yourself but hold yourself back a little bit I guess and help like you said you put it very nicely there help them find their own answer by asking the right questions yeah yeah, yeah. it's similar you're leading them to the conclusion well not not leading them but guiding them guiding them to try and help find their own yeah. way yeah it's a it's a I mean it's a, an approach that would be used in maybe executive coaching and I would have done some courses in that in the IMI when I was first transitioned to understand those skills so you can have knowledge even within my own sport but how do you actually bring that athlete on a journey to to, to communicate that knowledge uh, well and you know get your point across um, and understand what their point of view is as well so yeah I, that that side of things with the canoeing coaching has been building in tandem so the group of athletes I started with in 2013 I'm still working with now and back then it was so prescriptive you know you're telling them this is now, this is the training session, do it this this many times and this is what you should be looking for. And now that's those same small group that I work with. It's so much more of a collaboration. Like they've built up so much of their own experience that you kind of go, well, what do you think? You know, there's a much more of that type of questioning um, to come to a, a conclusion. I guess that, that sounds like a much more rewarding relationship, but you have to build to that. It's, you can't dive straight into that, yeah. uh, that dynamic. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there, so obviously your starting point and, and your trajectory into your career is very unique for maybe someone else who's listening now who, you know, who doesn't have the background of being a, an Olympic athlete. Um, how what what type of courses did you do or what 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 did you study in order to 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 to, to refine your, your your skills and your knowledge? Well, uh, I think a normal pathway, a lot of uh, people in my role, a normal pathway would be, you know, a sports psychology background or a master's in that area or even a sports science degree. Mine was definitely not traditional. I studied business and marketing. Um, and I I did uh, a diploma in executive coaching in the IMI when I finished as well. And I would have done other pieces around S&C as I was trying to figure out, well, where, where was my place, I suppose. Um, but my background is mostly experiential as an athlete. So I bring that side of things. I bring my experience as a coach and I bring what I've built up as a service provider and I'm currently finishing my master's in sports psychology as well so that's that's what I have in terms of um, academic qualifications but the rest of my team for example have a sports psychology background or you know a PhD in the area so it's uh, yeah I wouldn't say mine is maybe a traditional entry into it if I was 
um, if I was advising people, I would say, yeah, a sports psychology background and, and to try and just be around athletes of that caliber, like understand the environment they're operating in, talk to coaches, talk to athletes, because the sport to sport is so, so different. And uh, I think you, you learn that just by being around it, you know, well, what, what's the need here uh, and how can I help? It sounds like it's a it's a fairly emerging area, not new, but it's still emerging. There's probably are some opportunities at the masters and uh, and and PhD level for students to get involved in research into transition programs, it, into the, the lifestyle side of things for athletes as well. Yeah, and there's there's a huge crossover with the psychology department. So Kate Kirby leads the uh, the the psychology department, which is a mix of sports psychology but there's also a clinical element that we offer as well for athletes that need it so there's a a stepped model of care so we can refer on for you know for a greater um if there's a greater demand for more expertise or help we can refer on to to a clinical uh, level of psychology but one thing that's been fantastic over the last year and a half is how closely we the life skills team now works with psychology because there's a this idea in sports science you know swim in your lane but it's totally unrealistic in practice because we operate as multidisciplinary teams, as we said, and we sit around the table with nutrition, with S&C, with other service providers to understand, to put all the pieces of the jigsaw together and really get the closest picture we can of what's actually going on. So, um, yeah, that's been fantastic just to work so closely with that team, the psychology team, because there's, yeah, there's a lot of areas where we cross over. On, and it, it doesn't make practical sense to be midway through a conversation and to say, I'll just stop you there with an athlete and I'll refer you on to somebody else, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, that's been very good, very rewarding. It does. It reminds me of the, the, the very first episode of the podcast I did was with um, a girl I went to university with who's now a performance director with British Gymnastics. And she was saying that she'd be looking for people who there's a, there's a kind of a, a rise of the generalists. You need people who are specialists in their certain areas, but they need to have a, a good understanding of the other ologies or other disciplines that, that that they're working around, you know, in order yeah. to, to have that that really integrated approach across the service providers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, th- I think that's probably my background. I'm a bit of a generalist because a lot of the people I now work with were providing support to me as an athlete so the head of physiotherapy for example was my physio at the time and it's just funny like how how things have uh have have come around and how i now view it so you're you're looking at it through the lens of a service provider now and you understand the conversations that go on the background and the care that goes around an individual or a group of athletes is uh it's pretty substantial i don't know always know are athletes aware of what else is going on in terms of the level of care, the thought that goes into trying to get them to where they want to go. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating. So we're, 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 I think we're getting towards the end. We've talked about the past, the present. What about the future? So where, what, what, what vision would you have for the future of the service in an ideal world? Where would you like to see it go? Or what are the goals you'd like to set in place for life skills going forward? Um, I well, the, there's that exciting project, the um, the um, the one that Emma's working on, ASAS. The uh, oh god, I can't even think of the name of it now. Too many the, acronyms. Yeah, I know, and that, that's the thing. But the accreditation for third levels, I'm very excited about that and the future of that, where that will go. And you know, in in a few years' time, we hope to have uh, quite a few universities and third levels accredited, but also 
to see, well, can we progress that? Can we provide, can we see if the standard can go higher and maybe offer a gold, silver, bronze and, and recognize the, the great practice that is already there and, you know, encourage more, more of that kind of flexibility for student athletes. Um, the same goes for the athlete friendly employer network, but a new, a new program has just launched, um, from the Institute of Sport, but also from Sport Ireland, our parent agency, which is, uh, it's, it's like a retirement package. It's an athlete career transition. So there'll now be a financial element uh, when you retire that you can actually access some some money if you're a carded athlete uh, to retire and have a safety net, but uh, a transition services support. So that might look like a wind down from uh, your normal training with strength and conditioning. So an understanding of, well, you were at the elite level. What does it take to, to wind down to where you want to be rec- recreationally and not just go cold turkey and stop training altogether. Um, the same with, you know, body image is a huge thing. I think a lot of people struggle with that when they finish sport and how your your body might change because you're now, a, you know, a normal person mm-hmm. uh, and you may not understand, well, I, I used to consume 8,000 calories or um, something like that. To, what does what does normal look like for me now and, and how, how can a nutritionist support that? Um, medical and physio sign off. Uh, our service will be a key in that in terms of uh, career coaching, but also um, supporting them for a longer period of time in that transition because it's not a three or a six month transition. It takes typically it takes an awful lot longer than that. And if you've been in in the system for 10 plus years, it can be quite a challenging time to transition out because you've been doing something you've loved for so, so long and then to change to something that might be quite different. Uh, and the intensity, I, I, I always found that. I missed the intensity of, of competing at that level and there wasn't anything that quite replaced that for me. And I think that's why I mentioned earlier the soft landing of coaching is, is a pathway for some. Um, but yeah, that, that ACT program, as it's called, uh, is just up and running now. And I think it's a brilliant, brilliant offering from Sport Ireland to be able to say, look, we value what you've given this country and sport here. And we, we want to make sure that you have a good transition out and we're going to you know, provide financial support, but also services to do that. I think that's it's huge. It's Yeah, that sounds really interesting from the third level through to the, 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 the transition out of sport. Um, I, might be, I don't want to put words in your mouth now, but it might be, it sounds like there might be opportunities for, for jobs opening up in those areas if it all comes to fruition, perhaps liaison officers in the third level institutes or, or, other, or other service providers working to, with the athletes as they transition out of sport. Yeah, and that, I mean that's the that would be fantastic that athletes are actually as they transition out that they feel they have a place that they can come back in and and give something back if that's if that's the path where they choose there's so much investment over a ten year career for example and that could be uh, expertise but also financial investment and the knowledge that an athlete actually builds up over that period of time you know why lose it you know if they want to be coaching great bring them in upskill. If they want to operate in a third level setting and, and support athletes in, in that sense and as a liaison or a mentor, brilliant, get them in, you know, because they they do have a very unique experience uh, and, and a point of view that maybe not many people would have. Hmm. That's that's a, a, an exciting and positive note that I think we can we, we can leave it on there. 
Owen, it's been fascinating talking to you. Really, really interesting. Thank you for taking the time. I know you are really looking forward to doing this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not my so, favorite thing in the world to do, but you know. <laughs> oh, you're a natural. But no, it has. It's been fascinating. And I really do appreciate you taking the time and, and, and letting our listeners in uh, into the world that you operate in. Um, super interesting stuff and uh, very exciting for the future too if all those uh, projects come to fruition as you hope they do so thank you very much for speaking to me today Owen thank you thanks for having me no worries cheers okay so that's it for episode one of season two feels good to be back and Owen was a great guest to kick off with He's a modest guy, only hinting at the extensive career he had as an athlete. Owen represented Ireland at three Olympic Games, finishing fourth in Beijing, and he also took gold in the 2004 World Cup. He brings extensive experience to the performance pillar of the Life Skills Unit. Here are some of the things that stuck with me following my chat with Owen. Today's chat was all about transitions for athletes and how to manage them. Have you any transitions coming up in your life that you can identify? I bet we could all be a little less stressed and more productive if we tried to anticipate what lies ahead and put some simple plans in place. Performance life skills are not just for athletes. If you're working in sport, take a holistic view and get to know your athletes as people. There is so much more contained in the performance bubble that surrounds an athlete than just their training and competing. In order to maximise their performance, you may have to look beyond the training programme. Finally, if this area interests you, it sounds like there might be more opportunities coming up over the next few years. If you're eager to get involved, seek out chances to volunteer, shadow or take on placement in order to get your foot in the door. Right, that's it for today. If you've made it this far and you enjoyed the episode, it would be awesome if you could share it online. This helps to spread the word and build our audience. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, then you can catch me on Instagram at B underscore Wardrop. I'm open to any suggestions or feedback that you might have for me in the show. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you in the next episode.